I'm R.S. Benedict, and this is Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. In this episode, we are continuing our discussion with the folks from Death Sentence Podcast about the importance of reading things other than Harry Potter. All right, so aside from reading fiction, there are other things besides fiction that you should read, and I highly recommend reading some poetry. Uh, even if you are not a poet, I'm not a poet, um, but poetry is amazing at just pure style and and brevity. It's an incredible form in that it says so much with just like 20 words. <laughs> I'd recommend trying to write some even if you suck at it. It's, it's a useful exercise. Read contemporary poetry, read old-timey poetry. There are websites that give you a poem a day. They give you a nice variety of work, and a poem is short. It's not going to take you a long time to read it. Um, admittedly, my taste in poetry are, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a basic bitch. I'm, I'm not, I didn't study poetry formally in, in any way, but uh, if you guys have any recommendations for essential poets. I'm, I'm terrible at poetry. <laughs> I have no knowledge of poetry beyond the very basics, T.S. Eliot's. Yep. Alan Ginsberg's. That's yeah. I'm I'm useless with poetry. Oh, so. I fucking love poetry. So obviously we're gonna we're gonna hit the big ones. Your William Blake's again, one of the greatest writers of all time. Your um your your Percy Shelley's, your T. S. Eliot's. There's that list is there for a reason. But you also have someone now like Ocean Vong, who is just like an insanely brilliant writer, like absolutely fucking incredible. Um. Oh, I picked up his uh, his first novel the other day on On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous and about to crack the spine on that one. Excellent. So uh, I haven't read its novel, so so autobiography of Red is a novel in verse, but isn't uh, Anne Carson. Anne Carson. Uh, um, yeah, Anne Carson is just like a savagely brilliant poet. She wrote a book called Knox, a book length poem that fans out like an accordion. Whoa! So it's more it, it it's physically long. Uh, and it's a very intense epic poem she wrote uh, after the death of her brother. Wow. And it just, it's this deep unspooling work. Like the, the key thing for approaching poetry and first for understanding it on a level beyond just like, oh, they do rhymes and there's meter. Okay, whatever. That's, that's lame. Or like the crap poetry that every teenager writes. Like <laughs> I wrote it. I guarantee the two other people talking here wrote it. I guarantee the listener wrote it. Oh, absolutely. Rhyming despise with my eyes. I did a lot of those. But if fiction is about the sort of like rippling water and flesh of the world rendered into prose, imagine taking all the plot out and poetry is just supposed to be these evocative little beads. And sometimes you can string them together and like blow them out like glass into these bigger like like longer form shapes, but it's just trying to like lift that evocation out. And that's where it becomes this tremendously important tool for prose writers, because it's learning how to take that and like alchemically meld it into your prose as just like every now and again, doing this little droplet of intensely poetic writing and then swishing on. I mean, that's one of the things that makes uh, the like great Gothic fiction writing of the high Gothic era so good is precisely because a lot of those people were coming up around poets and drawing more from poetry and trying to compel into prose that intense numinousness that you get from just a searing poetic description of something. Mm. But yeah, Anne Carson is like my go-to for poets who are still active, who are just 
perfect. Like, oh. love them. Well, thank you. Also, Margaret Atwood has written some poetry, and it's quite good. It. Uh, I don't know if she still writes poetry, but there's this one in particular I love called Siren Song that's just, oh, God. It's like a knife between your ribs. It's so fucking good. Her start in writing was actually in poetry. I think she released like three or four books of poetry before she started releasing prose. And yeah, thankfully, I mean, it's it's harder now to go into a bookstore and pick up her early poetry collections compared to her prose novels, especially Handmaid's Tale. But they're not unavailable. Like they're they're cheap on Amazon. You can pick them up for like a couple bucks. And there's like the famous one of um, you fit into me like a hook in an eye, a fish hook, a human eye. <sighs> nice. That poem works less in America now where the notion of hook and eye binding of things pretty much only exists in bras now. Like <laughs> for everything else, we have like buttons and, and zippers and whatnot as much more common. But so the power's lost a little bit on the ironic twist from, oh, it's a hook fitting into a little, an eyelet. And then you're like, oh, fuck, wait, no. <laughs> yeah, she's absolutely incredible poet. And you can tell that her issues writing about people of color are less pronounced there when it's just a poem. Right. That's a that's a dark joke about her inability to write people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, drag her. Yeah. Also, she's gotten turfy, which is a weird... Oh, god damn it. It's something about strongly feminist white writers of that era. And <sighs> they seem to have predicated their notion of femininity and womanhood on gynocentrism. Right. And so you take away, like, oh, this woman doesn't have or wasn't born with a vagina. And they're like, no! No! <laughs> oh, god damn it. Yeah, she had a whole, um, like, scandal where she was, like, briefly cancelled because... I think she was like the she wrote a letter to defend right a real skeevy professor or something like that yeah it was like a um, some skeevy professor at some university in canada and she was like oh no he would never do this he's my friend you know the, the, the usual and um yeah so she was quite briefly cancelled in the canadian literary scene but now she's you know you've got multiple tv products made, made out of her shows so she's good again and of course she's like like harry potter uh, the handmade thing has become a staple of the centrist liberal um, meme sphere. To the point where I believe one of the Kardashians threw a Handmaid's Tale themed birthday party for herself, which is extremely good. Just, oh god, <laughs> what? That's just bizarre. Why would you want, why would you even want that? Just if you like the show. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Oh, uh, something else I want to stress. Um, moving on. Read literature in a foreign language. Translate stuff. Translate literature. Don't just read translations, because a translation's never going to be 100%, no matter how good it is. Um, study a foreign language, Americans, and even if you're not fluent in it, if you kind of sit there with a work of literature in a foreign language, just fucking sit there with a dictionary and work it out, scratch out a translation of something, it's incredibly gratifying and it absolutely opens your eyes to a new way of seeing language and expression. You start realizing that grammatical, semantic conventions that you took for granted are not universal. You start seeing just radically different ways of looking at the world. And you start to notice just how idiosyncratic and subtle a single word's 
usage can be when you're trying to translate a word that doesn't have any real equivalent in English. That's, that's particularly true of when you go outside of the kind of romance languages and English. Oh, yeah. Like if you go into uh, Chinese, Japanese, and think about the complexities, which we talk about show quite on, right. on Deaf Sentence quite a bit, the complexities of trying to translate J Japanese into English. It's really, really a mind-bending stuff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good way to at least like grow your brain a few sizes. Yeah. Ancient Greek did these constructions because of the nature of the language and the way they can do sentence structure would create these really elaborate, really complex sentences with multiple meanings and where the meaning of the sentence would change two or three times as you went along in the sentence. It's just like, holy fuck. The complexity of it is amazing. And it, it, it also winds up uh, incidentally giving more patience and understanding when you read a translation. Actually, even even if you don't finish it, even attempting one translation, right. especially something like literature. Literature doesn't live in the exact words. It lives in how those evoke something. And it gives you a much bigger appreciation for, one, what every translator has to go through. Right. And two, why we have awards that are given to translators for translated texts, because you become as much an author, a co-author of that work as the person who wrote it, because there will be a point where you're going to bust out a dictionary and you're going to be like, there's four ways I can interpret this. And that's just this word. I don't know if idiomatically it in conjunction with these words points it in a completely different direction. We have that now where thanks to drill, we can refer to someone as getting corn cobbed. And like, what the <laughs> fuck would that mean to someone who doesn't know drill and English? <laughs> right. Or like, wordplay and puns how do you translate a fucking pun from another language what do you do do you go for a literal translation in which case it's completely unintelligible or or do you go for like some kind of equivalent bit of wordplay like it's really these are huge decisions to make and they're really really hard and it's not easy to come up with a a right answer but having to do that challenging yourself to doing that can really make you grow as a writer. So uh, another thing you want to read is read some nonfiction, learn about the world, but go in depth. Listicles don't count. Pop psychology books don't count. Jordan Peterson doesn't count. Uh, Self-help books don't count. Twitter threads don't count. Twitter threads where someone says, buckle up, motherfuckers. We're going to learn some not entirely historically accurate things about some guy who died a hundred years ago. Um, YouTube videos by angry beardy men yelling in their parents' basements don't count. Read texts that go in depth. Research papers, sociology books. Read books that don't have a picture of the author crossing their arms on the cover. That's a that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, read about history. Look for primary sources. That's like sources from the time, like journals or, or newspapers from the time, for example. They give incredible insight into different eras. For fuck's sake, read primary sources if you're planning to write a historical work of fiction, for Christ's sake. Base your understanding on the time and not on your other historical fiction books you've written or read. <laughs> Yeah. And don't think you can't get those sources just because it's really old. If you want to write a Roman punk book, you can find like letters written from Roman centurions in Scotland, to their parents back in Italy, and just talking about like, I hope you send me another pair of socks quite soon. You can find Greco-Roman graffiti on the on the walls of uh, Pompeii. There's still graffiti. There's still like obscenities and insults and dick sucking jokes preserved from ancient times on those walls we even have um we have like collections of letters 
that like uh, lords and ladies sent each other in the 1700s, bound, translated, collected. Uh, we have history books. Let me find the name of it, actually. There's actually a really well-known history book that founded what we consider historical study today. That's a Nordic one called like the history of the world, but it has a weird Nordic name. Cursor Mundi, I think was the name of it. Yes. So yeah, you can find all of these, a tremendous amount of, from the most tiny, tiny historical details to the writings of generals about why they did various troop movements. Uh, reading actual, I mean, even if you don't necessarily follow along with it, um, reading the kinds of social theory texts that you hear people reference can be tremendously important for informing your work. Like, not to be trite, but uh, reading the capital is this profound kind of thing. Granted, there's way more equations in Karl Marx than, than you'd imagine. He puts a lot of equations in that shit. <laughs> like, you're like, wow, you worked out in thumbnail the labor extraction difference model. Okay, man, I don't know math enough to know if this is right or not, but thank you. Yeah, sometimes like the realm of philosophy and theory in that space gets read as being more unapproachable than it is. And it can be made sometimes artificially unapproachable. But at the end of the day, they're they're books and you know how to read. Like if you get to a part that you don't understand, it's easy enough to look up like, what ideas are they riffing off of? And maybe I need to go read an earlier book, maybe by this person or maybe by someone else to get the foundation to approach this one. You know, bit by bit, you can build that up. And then knowing political philosophy, knowing ethical history, knowing the philosophy of history, like how do we construct history, becomes deeply informative. Oh, and I know we've, we've said don't look up stuff on YouTube, to write, But there is actually a, would probably be a, just for genre fiction writers, a quite good channel called Artifexian, hmm. who has a guide to world, world building. And so he kind of teaches you to avoid really dumb mistakes in world building, like uh, desert planets. Why would there be a desert planet? How did all that sand get there? What eroded stuff to make all the sand that covers the entire planet? That doesn't make any sense. Or uh, trading cities in fantasy. Like, every city is a trading city. That's why we have cities. <laughs> uh, Artifexion on YouTube is quite good at at least getting you uh, past the basics in terms of historical research. And then you can actually go to, like, look at history and discover actual things and make stuff that's like actually makes sense and has like proper economies and biomes and stuff. And it yeah. seems at first like it's uh, useless nerdery to try to think about how do I model an economy? How do I model like what's the primary trade resource of this place? What are um, small inflections? But once you pick up that that's a process you can do and you go back to any like like truly great piece of science fiction or fantasy, you'll notice that all through it. Like one of the great tremendous gifts of someone like William Gibson is the sense of like real societies in which real characters were inhabiting like it doesn't feel like the world exists to carry out the plots or to hold the characters it feels like people in a real bar in a real city filled with real other people that have their own lives that are carrying out being carried out beyond the edges of the page it's much harder to get that affect if you don't know how to envision you know what would their life look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's a cliche that, oh, the truth is stranger than fiction, but it's true. The truth often is stranger than fiction. So read some of the truth. You'll get some fantastic inspiration and read deeply. The history that you learned in school is incredibly shallow and there's so much more nuance and complexity to it. So read in depth, read 
so much more. Ex expand yourself. This is the world that you live in. This is the real world <laughs> right. that you really inhabit. If you're not curious about that, I like it. It's a deeply questionable thing just on its own. But right. how can you ask someone to invest in a world you've invented if you show no ounce of curiosity towards the one that does? You won't know how to draw out the things that... I mean, that's where we get sometimes this really bad sentiment of literature as escapism. And it's not that it can't serve that role. But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't go to literature to escape from the world. We go to it to help understand and grapple with the world. Even when we're escaping, we want to come back stronger or like wiser, we don't want to come back having gained literally nothing. Obviously, there's nothing more annoying than someone who's like, now for the moral, but you know, if you can. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, another thing that I highly recommend, uh, read some literary criticism. I'm not talking about the, unfortunately, I think very shallow sort of thumbs up, thumbs down system of reviewing that people call criticism on the internet, or the whole think piece ecosystem that discusses cultural artifacts purely in terms of are they woke or not? Is this series feminist or not? Is this video game my friend? <laughs> um, I mean, please read in-depth analysis of literature. This helps you look inside an individual work of literature, see how the pieces fit together, and it helps you a lot when it comes to understanding, planning, and especially revising your own work. Um, my favorite literary critic is James Wood. That's not James Woods, the reactionary actor, but James Wood, just a single one. He regularly writes at The New Yorker, um, and he's written this incredible book called How Fiction Works, and it's just a fucking game changer. I love that book. Um, or you can just pick an author that you really, really like and just search for literary criticism of that author. See how different people with different perspectives have interpreted it, responded to it, understood it. It's absolutely eye-opening. And a lot of your favorite authors have probably written literary criticism. They do that yes. a lot. Like there's blurbs on the back of books. Uh, sometimes they come from like bigger pieces where they develop things. Like Charlie Mieville is a brilliant, brilliant literary critic. There's a lot of like great critics who are also great novelists. Uh, I don't think James Woods was, sorry, James <laughs> Wood was a very good uh, actual novelist. I feel like James Woods also isn't a novelist. Probably not a great novelist. He's written a lot of very angry posts, but he's not a novelist. Yeah, I don't think James Wood really did an amazing novel, but he is literary criticism is fantastic. Yeah, he's one of those people who's very good at the one thing, but not very good at the other. And there are plenty of great writers who are probably not very good literary critics, but there are some people who are very good at both. And China Mayville, like, is the one that pops out as the guy who can absolutely could be either. Or he can also be a great non-fiction writer because he did a great book called October, mm. which was also brilliant. And yeah, he's just generally good at everything he tries. I hate him for it. Oh yeah, isn't that infuriating? I wish he was physically weakened in order to humble him so that I could <laughs> feel less bitterness towards him. Yeah, he's not. He's, he's a big lad. He's, he's big tough. Ah, oh, damn it. Yeah. That's the worst. I know, right? That is not fair. Oh, God, oh, yeah. that's so unfair. He's a very funny guy. You know what made him that strong? It's the communism. The communism made him that strong. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you ever see the, the average leftist podcast? We've got like four muscle cells to rub together. <laughs> Like I, I've been, in, I've been in a room with uh, all the Chapo Trap House guys. I've been like twenty meters from them. Apart from uh, the, um, Felix, who is very well built, not very strong mm -mm. dude. 
to get back to things that that don't humble me and make me feel uh, puny and small. A good rule of thumb with literary criticism is if you see a score whatsoever, you're looking at a consumer's guide, not a piece of criticism. And it's not to say that like a consumer's guide isn't helpful because money is real until we overthrow capitalism. That's a thing that right. we have to think about. But criticism lives and dies by deep engagement, not evaluation. Even when we start airing to discussing that something has succeeded or failed, isn't nearly as important as those mechanical breakdowns of why is it succeeding why is it failing that's where we get like if the thrust of your article is x show is bad x novel is bad right that's not that's not helpful criticism it's like what's bad that's where you see in a lot of um in academic criticism you don't get a published article in like a, a journal uh saying like this book was bad like no one no one cares right. that's not like you're i'm not going to make you a phd holder who discusses literature with with their PhD for a living uh, by just, I like that book, yeah, it's fine, yeah. The thing that becomes powerful there is uh, you get to see real people having real insights about work and not just how it works internally, but how it connects to the broader world. And Absolutely. that becomes this tremendous tool if you want that to happen. And if you don't want your book to do that, I again question why you want to write. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to write the perfect object that resonates with no one. It is a perfectly dead series of words. Or the best one. The best one is, oh, I want to be a writer so I can make lots of money. <laughs> Yeah, that's not a good motivation to being a writer because it's it's not a realistic goal anyway. Um, all right, so literary criticism um, regarding how-to guides. What I would recommend is reading a couple of how-to-write guides and then throwing them in a fire, possibly peeing on the ashes, um, just to exercise them from your system. How-to guides are really helpful for beginners, but good writing doesn't follow a strict set of rules. Good writing often doesn't follow a formula, and if you follow a formula, your writing is going to be formulaic. And even great writers who give rules of writing, a lot of this is a matter of personal taste or cultural taste. Kurt Vonnegut has, I think, a list of eight rules of good writing, but that's for Kurt Vonnegut, and other really great writers don't follow those rules. Um, and honestly, a lot of this this uh, writing advice that I've encountered is completely wrong-headed. I've seen a lot of genre writers recommend Stephen King's book on writing. There's a lot of advice in there that I think is just kind of bad advice. Like he says that you shouldn't use the passive voice because stories should have action instead of passivity. And that's based on a huge misunderstanding of what the word passive means in the context of grammar, the grammatical meaning of a passive sentence, and the general meaning of a passive person are completely, completely different. And it's a little alarming to see a writer pretend that the two of them are the same. <laughs> It's, it's a brilliant phrase because it uh, it doesn't mean anything. Like, it looks like it means something, and then you think about it, and you go, oh, those, that combination of words actually signifies nothing. Lacan would have a yeah. field day with that one, just looking at it going like, huh, you've done it! You've put words together that has no interiority! This is amazing! <laughs> but yeah, to address, uh, to address Stephen King, like, the only bit 
as I get older that feels like a, a consistently bit of usable advice there is his bit of make writing a routine and even if you throw everything away. And that's that's you'll that's literally just the notion of like if you want to do it for real, you, you actually have to do it. You can't just be like, I want to be a writer and then not write anything. Mm-hmm. So it's like right. that's even the most perfunctory bit. Um because it's <laughs> the only really bit that slices through his own personal style and gets to like <laughs> it feels really dumb when you frame it that way yeah in order to be a writer the first thing you gotta do is you have uh, to write you gotta write that's an important step you can't not write and be but a writer it is a big step and a lot of aspiring writers don't do that you know there are a lot of people who are big into saying i'm a writer like they love the idea of being a writer all capital letters but not the idea of just fucking writing and that's just what you got to do you don't have to be published to be a writer that that's a that's one misunderstanding but the other one is like you do actually have to write like if i put a bookshelf together once i'm not a carpenter i did carpenting (laughs) once and yet because we tie such cultural clout to certain identities we make them we feel like we need to make them easier to acquire in certain ways but then it's weird because that comes hand in glove with this notion of like yeah you can want to write and now you're a writer but also no writers are as good as the ones that are published and no published writers are as good as the ones who are rich and it's like that's not that's not how art works that's not what (laughs) if you paint something and no one buys it you didn't not paint it but also you can't go i like paintings i'm a painter now like you have to paint something (laughs) i bought some paint i'm a painter i watched some bob ross so i feel comfortable calling myself a painter yeah a lot of the a lot of the how-tos are somewhere between um very direct and style driven in which case they're likely not very useful even if they're very well-intentioned to uh outright cryptically horrible like like jonathan franzen's list that he did for uh lit hub was uh oh that was so mm. bad oh it was like a book of aphorisms written by a machine so like <laughs> they can't be intelligent they're just like jonathan what the fuck are you saying and it's like <laughs> are your books bad because you're stupid is that what makes them so yeah. bad <laughs> a reader is a friend not an adversary spectator that means nothing yeah There is no content to that sentence. Write in third person unless a re-distinctive first person voice offers itself irresistibly. (sighs) That's just write in a third person unless you want to write in first person. Right. That's what literally everyone has ever done. (laughs) You've just described decision making about what person to set your novel in. I mean, I got similar bad advice from a um, actually really good creative writing professor at uh, George Mason. it's like a really esteemed professor who'd been there for decades and ran the MFA program and all that. And he was like, yeah, never write in a first person voice unless you can just say it. And I'm like, isn't that every decision in writing? Like, I don't yeah. know what makes that special. Make deliberate decisions. Don't do a thing unless yeah. you want to do the thing and it's a good idea. <laughs> it, it's startlingly basic. It's a startlingly basic thing, but made to sound slightly smarter unless you think about it and it's we partly get these bad how-to guides because writing is this weird quantum state between being intensely simple and intuitive and then being intensely complex um we use the word intuitive to describe things that our brain is very good at handling all the syncretic calculus style motion of crunching influences crunching concepts and doing a million permutations of how do i 
pump words into the conscious part of the brain, the, the thinking, the kagito, the thinking eye, like about the type of blue they're seeing. So we use the word intuitive to describe this very complex process that comes naturally. Everything before this, I mean, it, it's smart that we're talking about how-to guides here. You won't need a how-to guide if you're reading that broadly. Because when you sit down with that, like, that gut urge we all know of, like, yeah, I got something in the tech time to get the right done. If you've been reading that broadly of all those different sources, your inner voice will start to kick in. And, like, as long as you're good about editing and you don't shut down, part of that is learning not to shut down the first impulse. Because you can fix the first impulse later, but if you don't put any impulse on the page, you can't edit something that's not there. You can't make right. a great story out of nothing on the page. A lot of this writing advice, I think, is intended for, like, college freshmen. Yeah. So a lot of college freshmen overuse passive voice, they overuse semicolons, they overuse a lot of these things. But there's nothing inherently wrong with those. It's just that I think a lot of college freshmen do it too much. And if you're a writing instructor, you see way too much of it and you go, fuck it, get rid of it all. I don't want to see it again. It's easier to tell someone not to do something than to tell them how to do it well. But unfortunately, right. that's also lazy and isn't designed to help you. It's designed to make a creative writing teacher's job less uh, horrible, um, yeah. which is fine. That job is horrible, but also... You you need to take control over making your own writing better. You can't leave that at the behest of someone else whose best Absolutely. interests aren't always to see your writing get better. Absolutely. Now, uh, the last point I, I'd like to bring up is uh, we've talked a lot about what you should read. Let's touch briefly upon how you should read. And I would urge people to read as a writer, not as a passive consumer. Analyze what you're reading. Pay attention to literary technique, word choice, organizational structure. It's not enough to just consume, but let's look in depth. Now, what, what, what does that mean to analyze what you're reading, read as a writer? I think a lot of people have the idea that you can read a bunch of stuff and you'll slowly start to steal little bits here and there. And if you steal enough, you can build a whole uh, book out of the things you've stolen. And that's actually semi-true. But you've got to do an extra step, which is to think, why do you want to steal these particular affects or phrases or characters or anything out of books? Why, when you're going through a page and something jumps out at you and you go, oh, I've got to do something like that, why are you doing that? And if you can think about why you want to take from other books, then you can do the, like, the hard work of like self-analysis that is required to write something really, really amazing. Trying to retain sensitivity to is sometimes we can too quickly gravitate oh what's that big gut punch sentence in this book and part of thinking as a writer is the architecture of an entire building is important a certain load-bearing structures and they may not be the most beautiful part of a building but without them that other thing literally would be much uglier um, or just be like when you yank a quote out of context and throw it on a wall and it becomes the stupid fucking cliche like, mm. we mentioned this before about the Dumbledore's army thing. They yanked out this notion <laughs> of, like, the Dumbledore's army. They did a lot of killing. They actually had a pretty specific <laughs> approach to fascism, which wasn't wearing hats. It, it, was, it was killing. It was a lot of killing. Constant killing. It was blood in the streets killing. <laughs> but when you yank that out and remove all that architecture, it's just this generalized notion of resist. You know what was the vehicle of kindness? A bullet through the head of Nazis. Like, that's... <laughs> That's how you do kindness to the people that they would have hurt. They didn't go, how can I put Voldemort back in a cage? 
something. They they blew him the fuck up eight times. <laughs> <laughs> but bringing this up in the context of how to read other work, it's those big gut punches. It's still worth noting where they are and the fact that they resonated with you. But you need to start thinking, how did they build up to this being that power? And not just thinking plot, because right. um, the best way to think about a book is the plot isn't the book. The plot is inarguably the least important of any given piece of writing, even in genre writing. That's the vehicle with which you get someone to experience your prose. And if your prose is good, the plot can be very action-packed or very, uh, very uneventful, and it can still be moving. Meanwhile, if your prose is bad, the most action-oriented plot isn't really going to do much of anything. So you need to start thinking, like, the little things. How do they handle... I mean, that's where you get some of the most fundamental, important comments in, like, a creative writing class is paying attention to how dialogue tags work and noting that the vast majority of the time they're not all that fantastic or they'll be cutaway action. So instead of it being, like, he said with a merciless laugh, something like that, you can just do a hard period. And you can do a brief description, but you don't have to make it a weird tag that throws all these continuous action verbs in there. You, you can instead you know, interject a little description. Or you can note, like, oh, in this instance of dialogue, they comment on something that someone's doing without there being a cutaway narration. Like, for Kazuo Ishiguro, his dialogue is tremendously clipped and subdued and very repetitive. Um, and they very rarely, if ever, directly speak. And so part of it is you need to have that reader experience, like the blunt reader experience of what does it feel like to read this book? But then being able to put on that second lens of like, what did they do mechanically that brought me to that precipice? If you only see the precipice, like a cliff doesn't work unless there's a lot of space between the edge of the cliff and the ground and uh, some space behind you. How did you get up on the cliff? Like there's a lot of mechanics to that cliff edge moment in writing. And so things like diction, things like sentence structure, things like varying of sentence length. If you want a good cadence in prose is probably more important than plot. It's probably the most important part. You can even get away with some really weird choice if the cadence is there. If it sounds internally as you're reading it like, ah, fuck, book is happening. Or if you're breaking <laughs> from that deliberately in a way that feels satisfactory. Like Walt Whitman will drive that shit into your brain. It's like, why is this line that long? Then you read it and you're like, oh, fuck, because it's perfect. Yeah. Now, I, I have heard people suggest like, oh, that that's going to make it harder to enjoy stuff if I got to analyze everything and detect everything. They're partly right in that when you read as a writer, it's harder to enjoy badly written shit. Uh -huh. <laughs> but on the other hand is you'll start to enjoy really well written work a lot more and in much greater depth. You really start appreciating the writer's talent and you start enjoying work that you might have dismissed before because you just didn't get it, man. I find I can even read really, really bad stuff as a writer and still enjoy it more. Oh yeah. Because I can just mentally rewrite stuff in my head. Or at least you can kind of see, here's why it went wrong, here's here's why this is happening. Not just passively not enjoying something. You can take it apart and see, like an engine that's not working, why is this not working? And you can realize, oh yeah, it's pacing, it's all kinds of stuff. It's also worth noting that the more you understand this stuff, it feels like, oh, you just don't know how fun, and you'll hear that from some people. <sighs> Uh, like God knows I have, but the other the other component of this is like I love literary stuff. I I have eight bookshelves in my house, and it's not a very big house, and they're all very full of uh, lots of different kinds of books. Fucking love. 
Um, but I still love pulp. Like, oh yeah, like pulp. I brought this up before. I've read every Indiana Jones novel. Those are not high literature. Like, I've read more Star Wars novels than I can express. And I'm not comfortable saying the number. It's a lot. <laughs> um, you don't stop liking that, but your level of appreciation for how is this constructed and how is this developed changes. It's no longer this mystery. Anyone who's written seriously has a weird respect for someone like Patricia Cornwell who can sit down and execute a thriller and then make a fuckload of money <laughs> and do that like four times a year. That's the crazy thing. You look at her publication schedule, there's no breathing room. It's just sit, crank out a book, and it always sells really well. You learn to appreciate things like that in a totally different way. Even if you don't like the book at all, it becomes a sense of mechanical lesson. You don't have to not love the things you love, but now you'll understand, like, how is pulp made? Because we've all run into good pulp and bad pulp. Totally. There's the kind of pulp where you're like, yeah, fuck, yeah, that truck became a man! Um, <laughs> and then ones where you're like, I hate this. This is really dumb. Every line they say is terrible. Something like Adventure Time, a really well-acclaimed show. Part of its power was it presented this ludicrous and very paradoxical fantasy scenarios and just didn't elaborate on them, just said them, right. and then treated them as though they were real. And that led to its power. And, it, like... Those little kinds of observations, knowing how to mechanically observe, oh, how come that works? But some random person's webcomic feels like twee and affected and really just annoying. You become more critically capable of separating that so that you can execute more like, even like the candy-ish pulp stuff that you love, knowing how to execute more like that than the pulp stuff that feels like trash shit garbage. <laughs> like a, chef, a professional chef can still enjoy a candy bar every now and then and not be like, this is beneath me. Just be like, nope, I love Snickers. It's good shit. It's not going to get a Michelin star. It's still tasty. I respect that. <laughs> All right. So, my God, we've talked for like two hours. We've rambled quite a bit. So I think it is definitely time to uh, call, uh, uh, get to the end. Uh, is Before we go, is there anything you guys would like to plug? Oh, damn. Um, communism, uh, gay shit, um... That's about it. Yeah. yeah. Communism and gay shit. Good. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit more self-serving. We have our own podcast, Death Sentence, where we cover uh, contemporary, mostly contemporary literature. Um, So check that out. There's some non-contemporary literature. We do a lot of non-fiction books. Those get more engagement, even though I like them less. Mm. I am a columnist at Invisible Oranges. I have a uh, like literary non-fiction column um, called I'm Listening to Death Metal that's been running over there. Nice. Uh. And I also have a sci-fi novel called uh, Pyramid Head Black that's available. Oh, wow. It's good, folks. Very cool. I've been really lazy on writing lately, but last thing I did was in Commune magazine. It was a piece on the various different uh, times that uh, literary authors have tried to deal with Trump in books and how they've done it really badly. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff about Harry Potter in there as well, so you'll like that. And Commune Mag is just a great, great, great magazine, and you should really, really check that out. It's just so good. Great. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, that's it for this episode. Join us next time when we talk about escaping white room syndrome. This has been Right Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at rightgood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash rightgood. <laughs> 
kittysneezes.com in color.